Hello everyone, it's August 15th, 2023. So back in May, NASA declared an end to the Lunar Flashlight mission. They were having some thruster problems. At the time, we didn't know what had gone wrong, but NASA has a pretty good idea now, and it has to do with 3D printed titanium. Who would have thought? So let's get into it and lift off. In we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 422 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Uh, I've been watching a good uh, TV show this week. Uh, have you guys ever watched uh, Why Women Kill? Mm-mm. I've never even heard of it. Same here. Yeah, neither had I. Um, so it's on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, but it's a Paramount or it's a uh, it's an HBO show. And I don't know why it's not on HBO's streaming platform, but, you know, contracts. And so there there are two seasons of it right now. We're watching the second season and each season is its own storyline. And the first season was way better than the second season. But the second season is still like, yeah, you know, I still want some more of this. But the first season is really incredible. It is three stories told at the same time. So one story is set in uh, 2019, one is set in 1984, and then one is set in 1965 or something like that. And it starts off basically telling you uh, three women are going to kill somebody in these stories. Like, And so the entire time you're going, okay, like there's the obvious choice of who's going to kill who. And then you're like, oh, well, wait, maybe it's not an obvious choice. Maybe it's this more subtle choice. Mm. And then they like start throwing red herrings at you and you're like, well, that's gotta be a red herring, but maybe like it's a red herring that it's a red herring. <laughs> and it really is a, a very fantastic story. It's really in a lot of ways, it's one story told three times over um, the emotional cues in each story as they're like switching back and forth between time periods. Like the emotional content is pretty much exactly the same. So like the arc of every episode, you're seeing three different stories, but like it feels like it's the same story happening in three time periods. Um, And then there are a lot of like physical cues where in three consecutive scenes, somebody will do the same thing uh, in each time period. Like it's, it's really clever uh, cinematography and like visual storytelling. Um, The story is well worth, you know, consuming, uh, watching and, and taking into your brain. Um, And like, there's some wholesome crap in here that like, like made me teary eyed. Like it it was really good. So, um, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a good satisfying ending. I'm not going to say whether it's happy or sad, but it's satisfying. You're not left dangling. What's cool. Yeah. We don't get enough good TV show or television show recommendations on this podcast. Uh So I appreciate it. I'll check it out. (laughs) Yeah. Go for it. So lunar flashlight failure. Okay. So just as a reminder, um, lunar flashlight was a mission um, that launched uh, with Hakuto R. Um, Also, uh, Hakuto R M1 is like the really specific name uh, on Falcon 9 uh, headed towards the moon. It was going to be this really cool, uh, what what was it? Laser spectroscopy experiment uh, that was going to orbit the moon and like map the the surface geology and one of the one of the cool things about it is that it has this experimental propulsion on board um so it uses ascent 
uh, which is an acronym for Advanced Spacecraft Energetic Non-Toxic. So the acronym isn't complete unless you say Ascent Propellant. (laughs) (laughs) So Ascent is this green monopropellant that was uh, developed uh, by AFRL, the Air Force Research Lab. And like this was going to be this cool uh, dynamic, what's it called? Uh, when they do low thrust trajectories to the moon, like with all the three body weirdness. Oh yeah. Weak stability boundary. There we go, Mike. Thank you. And, uh, lunar flash. I was really excited for it. Like I got to hear some of the people who worked on it, uh, talk at, uh, uh, IAC 2019, like years and years ago now. Uh, and it, just, it was like this, it was going to be this cool thing. And it, it failed. Uh, we heard about the failure back in like, uh, May, I think, And so we're hearing about it more now because they've talked more about what actually caused this failure. Um, So before we get into the failure, let's talk more about the propulsion system. Uh, It has four thrusters, and this is pretty cool. They all point down, and these thrusters are used both for uh, maneuvering thrust and for desaturating the reaction wheels. Um, These thrusters have an ISP of just over uh, 200 seconds, and on board the vehicle is two kilograms worth of propellant, which will get the vehicle about 290 meters per second of delta V. Um, The propulsion module is actually pretty big. It takes up about half of this 6U CubeSat, right? So we're talking about roughly 3U CubeSat worth of propulsion module. And the propulsion module, it's pretty neat. I've got some really good um, PDFs in the show notes. Um, one is from Georgia Tech that talks about their testing and manufacturing and qualification stuff. And then another one is from Cal Poly. And uh, there, there are like lots of really good photos of different components. But a number of components were additively manufactured um, using uh, centered titanium powder. Um, these components were the manifold, the recirculation block, and a sponge inside the propellant tank. Um, the manifold is like kind of a boring necessity. It's just a place to route uh, fluids from one place to another. Um, and it's, if you think about the the fuel tank as being roughly a rectangular prism. Uh, the manifold is a thinner rectangular prism that sits on the bottom of it. And then on the bottom of the manifold is where the four engines are and they stick out uh, the back of the vehicle. One of the papers, I have to quote from it now, and this will make sense later, but the quote is, uh, the manifold will increase the heritage of metal additively manufactured flight hardware and will lead to opportunities for other additively manufactured flight hardware, including propellant tanks and tertiary hardware. Mm. And before I stop talking about the papers that I read, you have to go check out the Georgia Tech paper because um, not only do they have some really great photos, but they also talk about the development of additive manufacturing as a technology for spacecraft. So like, for instance, they had the manifold printed and then they sent it to a machine shop uh, for post-processing. And the machine shop basically sent it back and said, hey, we can't do anything with this because uh, we can't define the datum, which is to like uh, have a, a solid reference point. And so then their response was, okay, well, let's go get this 3D scanned. And so they have um, these wonderful tolerance maps uh, of their part and how uh, each part of the surface differs from the intended shape. Um, And like they had some 
problem solving to do. They actually wound up reorienting how the part was was positioned in the print bed to like reduce internal stresses to improve their print tolerances. And then they had to like alter their design a little bit to accommodate that new orientation. It's really cool. Like it's a good paper. No, it does sound neat. Yeah. It, it's it's worth uh, taking the time to to glance through real quick. And I mean, the photos are great. Like who doesn't love photos? Okay. So Lunar Flashlight encountered uh, these thruster issues uh, almost immediately after launch. Like it was very early on that we heard that that they were having issues. And then a little bit after that, we heard that they, like they failed out uh, and, and weren't able to going to, weren't going to be able to go to the moon. But almost right away, they said, hey, uh, turns out, Three of our four thrusters are not working. Um, so the thruster that was working was thruster four. Uh, the other three were firing, but they just weren't getting up to full thrust. And so they figured out a way to do single thruster burns. So they didn't even have to do like two out of the four engines, like a, a balanced thrust kind of burn. They were able to do totally unbalanced single thruster burns. And they they got away with it for a while. They were able to do nine maneuvers just using thruster four, which is the one that was uh, at 100% thrust. And um, after those nine maneuvers, uh, thruster four uh, threw in the towel, said, I quit. And its thrust dropped at zero or very close to zero, I guess. So at that point, they switched to thruster three, which was like the next best. Um, it had 25% thrust um, and they were able to do a couple of burns. Uh, the plan uh, using thruster three wasn't going to get them into lunar orbit, but it would allow them to adjust their trajectory to get a couple of flybys. Um, and like I said, thruster three worked for a little bit and then it died as well. And so at that point, they you know, said, no, we're, we're done. <laughs> like we're, we're not going to be able to, to continue the mission pretty much right away. They suspected that debris somewhere in the propulsion system was at issue. And I guess it's likely downstream with a manifold of it is affecting different engines differently. But anyway, after the primary mission was, you know, was ended, um, they did some additional investigation and they were actually able to rule out all of the alternative cause theories that they had developed, um, which is like the next best thing to actually being able to confirm debris uh, as the cause. So here's the thing. The debris is suspected to have been uh, shed by the printed components. So the way that these things work is they take a bunch of uh, titanium uh, powder and put it in uh, a printer and they, uh, I believe this is laser centering, uh, could have been another technology, but laser centering is super common. Uh, they hit it with laser and melt it and then they brush a thin layer on top of it and they do that over and over. And so, you know, you have a solid component but it's still got some voids in it and the surface is, is pretty rough. And so where that rough surface is, you know, you need to wash out all the powder that's, you know, kind of stuck to it, but isn't fully melted in. But the th the thought is that when they uh, experienced launch, there was just so much vibration. And then when they pressurized and depressurized and had, uh, you know, thermal cycling and all this, um, 
uh, on orbit, they just dislodged a couple of uh, extra titanium particles that were big enough to cause clogging down the line. Now, of course, uh, better cleaning, uh, as well as uh, developing a design that has more filters in the in the fuel stream uh, than this one did. Both of those two are really straightforward ways to mitigate this type of failure. Unfortunately, because Flashlight was supposed to originally fly with Artemis 1, not with Akuto R, they basically were under what they call extreme schedule pressure, and they just didn't have time to take those extra precautions. Um, hopefully, the lessons learned here will get applied, and you know th- things like if you're if you've got 3D printed components touching your fuel, you need a lot of filters. Will just become sort of a rote, uh, accepted part of engineering knowledge. What's really ironic though is that the vehicle underwent pre-flight testing, and they identified an issue that caused them to replace a motor. So after they had integrated the entire vehicle, um, they took um, their spare engines. I think this is called batch. Te- What's it called? If in like a production environment where you like you do things in batches and you test a sample of your batch, not your whole batch. Yeah, I, I know the idea, but yeah, I don't, I don't know a word for yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you know, the the lunar module, the the lunar lander motors were done like this because the ascent motor was a, a a motor you could only burn once, right? And so you couldn't test the flight engine. Well, these engines, yeah, you probably could test the flight engine, but again, they didn't have time and probably the ability to test and then refurbish and install was was pretty drastic. But they did have spares and they went and tested those spares. Um, and what's cool is that they, the spares were tested at um, MSFC. So I don't know what the exact testing uh, regimen was at Marshall, but while they're testing some number of engines, one of them had a failure during a hot fire. And here's the really ironic thing. When I was reading the paper, this hot fire was specifically one done after they had done vibration testing. And I was like, was it a clog? Mm. And like, really, you hope it's not. You hope it's not debris and that they didn't know that this was an issue uh, going into the launch. But it was actually a different issue. Um, The the engine that failed actually was leaking and they identified that a particular feed tube configuration for one of the flight thrusters was also vulnerable to whatever this leak failure mode was. And so they decided that it was bad enough that they were going to replace that flight thruster. So after they had integrated this vehicle, they didn't want to follow the exact reverse steps to take it apart, switch the engine out and put it back together because like the, the amount of work, like they, they detail this in the Georgia tech paper. Like it's, (laughs) it was a lot of work. So instead they kind of like pull a couple of panels off and get access to it. And, uh, they replace the, the thruster. They did a hydrogen, uh, test to make sure that the flow was proper and they, they had, uh, hooked the thing up properly. Um, and then they went, this was after they had done their vibration testing on the vehicle. So, as they're going back in, they're applying epoxy to the head of each of the fasteners that they're screwing back in to make sure that they don't come out. And then after that, they were able to do a thruster preheat cycle uh, in a vacuum chamber uh, to validate that part of the engine. 
And like, this is my guess, is that before they had to replace the thruster, they were under schedule pressure. When they realized that they had to replace the thruster, that's when they went into extreme schedule pressure. I think at that point, it's probably too late, right? It's too late to add more uh, filters into the fuel stream. It's too late to do the kind of intensive cleaning that they had to do. And ironically enough, they actually had to send parts, uh, wetted parts is what they call it, uh, parts that touch fuel. They had to send one of them back out for cleaning uh, because they didn't specify a clean enough standard. um, And there were non-volatile chemicals that were still uh, on the surface of this part. I'm telling you, the, the Georgia Tech paper is really good. So like they they did all this extra work and it really sucks that like they didn't nail the one thing that wound up uh, crippling the mission and leading them to missing the moon. You know, like they, they didn't mm-hmm. even get a fly by the moon. I have a question. Do you know how big you said that these titanium particles came downstream and clogged these little thrusters? Like what size are these particles? It's got to be dust, right? Yeah, it's it's on this on the scale of dust. I don't know how big it is. They talked about their sintering process. Maybe they talk about particle size. Do you think like it was like a, I guess like a gradual buildup, you know, like that's kind of what they're dealing with here, not just. Perhaps. I I think you could say that it's a gradual buildup for the engine that, engine four, which failed later, but it sounds like it's a pretty binary thing. Either the engine was clogged or it wasn't clogged. Well, but didn't they try some of that crazy stuff where they like basically, yeah, you got where they increase the pressure beyond the rated limit, which helped until it didn't help. <laughs> and it was like kind of very, you know, <laughs> variable. So that's what I was thinking was that maybe the clogging was semi-variable where maybe something that was clogged upstream would get loosed a bit and that would be good until it would get clogged somewhere downstream a little bit. And then it wasn't so helpful anymore, you know, and maybe in the process of trying to, you know, run it extra hot, you end up maybe clearing some of it a little bit, but then I don't know how the process works, potentially liberating more of the debris. Yeah. So I, I was just looking to see if I could find a particle size and uh, hmm. on a quick, quick search, I wasn't able to find it. I don't think that these are chunks uh, because I think anything that we would call a chunk would be big enough to leave, you know, room around it. Um, hmm. I think it is dust. I think they are particles small enough that we don't really talk about the shape of the particle. Right. I, I don't think it was. I don't think it was that gradual. I think it it was either clogged or unclogged. Although maybe maybe if I describe this, this will help maybe a little bit, giving an impression of of what of the behavior of this stuff. Uh, Dennis, like you mentioned, they uh, increased the propellant pressure beyond its rated limit, and this was just for one thruster. And when they did that, it actually brought the thrust up in that engine, not not to a hundred percent, but it did increase thrust. And then they they went cool. That worked. Let's try it again. And they tried it on a different engine and they pretty quickly saw propellant pressures drop and temperatures drop. And um, they're pretty sure they actually ruptured a propellant line. Oh, geez. Um, so like, yeah. So these, these particles are wedged in good enough that you, you know, they push back better than propellant lines do, right? <laughs> like it's, mm-hmm. it's not going to unclog. Um, and you know, the geometry of the, of the injector plate in the, in the engine is probably a, a major driver of 
the stuckage or the ability to unstick it. But either way, it must be for for any specific blockage, it has to be a bunch of these particles, right? Like Because I don't think that there are, are any channels or holes that are that small that a single bit of dust could actually block yeah. it. So it's kind of like yeah. a little silty, slushy kind of like build up or not build up, but you know, it happens all at once, let's just say. Yeah. Like you kind of threw a bunch of sand in there and then it clogged it up. Yeah. I mean, like if it happened after launch, that makes a lot of sense that you would suddenly have, yeah, almost like a silt kind of just sitting around. And I wonder if the orientation of the vehicle and the the vibration modes on Falcon 9, particularly in whatever launch mount this was sitting in, like I wonder if that explains why one thruster was was fine. The mm. geometry of the manifold is pretty complex and like each engine has a slightly different shaped fuel path leading to it just because they're cramming things into a small space. But yeah, I, I think that's pretty fair, especially because like thruster four was at a hundred percent thruster two was at 25% and the other two were, were much lower. So like, yeah, it seems like, you know, one has got 25% of its, you know, whatever the smallest gap is, is, is clogged and the other ones don't. Yeah. That really sucks. That part of this was bad luck too. You know, they could have maybe mm-hmm. just gotten luckier and, oh, well, you know, even though this particle shedding is going to happen, but maybe it only happened to affect one of the thrusters or all of them less, you know, marginally. It basically sounds like they drew a pretty bad hand in terms of uh, how affected the thrusters were by this potential problem. Since it yeah. is something that isn't like, you fire your thruster, it's going to explode, you know, like like because of some known yeah. like issue. <laughs> Instead, it's more like, well, there's going to be this gunk that accumulates and reduces the flow rate and so your thrusters there's going to be a gunk that's going to be completely invisible to you until we launch this thing once it's in orbit then it actually starts doing things uh speaking of sucking um one of the one of the solutions that they considered and i don't think they ever actually implemented uh was they considered reversing the propellant pump to actually try and suck debris out of little tight spots Hmm. Mm. And like, <laughs> cool that they can even do that. <laughs> yeah, it, it is really cool that the propellant pump has a reverse mode on it. Um, but like, that that seems kind of terrifying, right? Yeah, it sucks in some interplanetary dust or something. Like <laughs> no, it's well, I mean, you, su- you suck in the vacuum and and you're screwed, right? Now you now you've got vacuum everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Well, I hope they uh, launch a lunar flashlight too, because it sounded like a really yeah. cool mission. And just you talking about it, I like it so much more now <laughs> now that I kind of like learned about about it I didn't know much else uh, other than just the top level stuff looking for ice in permanently shadowed craters but now it's yeah it's a lot it's a much more interesting uh, spacecraft and should be you know cheap enough right it's a 6 u cubesat yeah. how much could a 6 u cubesat possibly cost ben you know <laughs> <laughs> 10 okay. million dollars the minimum is the cost of the flight i guess yeah right i mean that's usually going to be the the major contributor, but like, I don't know, a six U cube sat in, I don't know, like platinum or maybe even a rare earth metal that's more expensive. Like just in material costs, we can bump that up real high. Then all we have to do is pick like a material that's really tough to machine and specify an absolute bonkers shape, right? Some geometry inside. Yeah. That, and you can't 3d print it. You're going to have to machine it from the inside out and you're going to have to do this crazy yeah, I could get real expensive real quick. We're we're gonna make synthetic aperture, but like not with chips. We're gonna do synthetic aperture, and we're we're gonna have like an actual aperture on the side of this thing, a mechanical synthetic aperture. Yeah. So 
I mean, rest in peace, Lunar Flashlight. I'm totally here for Lunar Flashlight too. That that's gonna be pretty cool. Okay, so let's do three short and sweets this week. Uh, Dennis, what's the first one? Boeing aiming for six Starliner flights to ISS. With the first crewed Starliner flight pushed back to early next year, and the ISS scheduled to be deorbited in early 2031, the window for Boeing's commercial crew missions is closing quickly. However, the company is still confident it will complete the six crewed flights ordered by NASA within that time frame. The most recent delays for Starliner were due to weak links in the parachute system and a significant amount of flammable tape used on wiring. In a recent briefing, NASA and Boeing reported making significant progress on these problems and that while they anticipate the vehicle to be ready in March, scheduling with other crewed vehicles may preclude it from launching at that time. And next up, NASA test fires Mars Ascent Vehicle's motor. As part of NASA's Mars Sample Return Program, the Mars Ascent Vehicle, or MAV, will be a two-stage rocket that takes the samples gathered on the red planet to orbit, at which point another spacecraft will bring them to Earth. The MAV, which would be the first rocket to launch from the surface of another planet, has two development solid rocket motors, the SRM and the SRM-2, that have recently been test-fired at Edwards Air Force Base and Northrop Grumman's facility in Maryland, respectively. The first stage motor demonstrated a new trapped ball nozzle, which allows the motor to change its thrust vector during flight. After testing is completed, two flight motors will be built for the actual vehicle. And finally, to Artemis 3 or not to 3, that is a question. Uh, NASA Associate Administrator Jim Free is worried about Starship's pace of development. A few months ago, he predicted that Starship would probably cause Artemis 3 to slip from December 2025 to sometime in 2026. A few weeks ago, NASA submitted an updated schedule, and Jim Free says that Artemis plans will be updated, quote, after we have some time to digest the new schedule. However, rather than pushing Artemis 3 back indefinitely, NASA says that they have other mission plans available if need be. All right, moving along then to this week in spaceflight history, we have just three winners. Uh, we had like six guesses or seven guesses, um, but the winners with bonus points are Deathkin, Sock, Kyle, and Broom. So congratulations. The clue was that last step is a doozy, and the event was the 16th of August, 1960, and it was the third and final Project Excelsior jump by Joe Kittinger. So this was uh, back in uh, 1959 through 1960, just uh, two years, there was uh, three jumps and these were the jumps from the high altitude balloon gondolas and uh, he did all three joe kittinger and he set several records which we'll get to later so yeah what was the purpose of project excelsior and really it's kind of like a lot of things i just have like a few things listed here but this is back before anyone had ever gone to space so we're you know this is like the very very just before the days of actual space flight. And uh, you have to kind of put yourself in that mindset where we don't know if human beings can even survive in space. And that's kind of what this was meant to find out, as well as some other things. So it had applications for both the Air Force as well as NASA. As far as uh, the Air Force was concerned, uh, this was to basically um, help develop new forms of pilot ejection seats for high-altitude aircraft like the X-15, um, just because they fly very high and they were only getting higher. And it's hard to eject from an aircraft flying, you know, 60,000 feet and actually still survive. That was a big thing because um, uh, 
uh, there are some issues such as the lack of O2, flat spin, extreme cold. These are all things that you would have to contend with. But the other more fundamental question was just if a person could even survive at you know a very high altitude, which is essentially like space. Because this is at a time when like no one knew if that was even possible. So this all took place just like one year before Alan Shepard's first flight, which was what, a couple months after Yuri Gagarin's, right? I think. But at that time, back in the late 50s, there was no aircraft that could go that high and there was no rocket that could carry a human being that high. So the only other option was a balloon. Uh, and this was also to test the MC3 pressure suit, which was made by David Clark, which uh, is a famous manufacturer of pressure suits. Uh, they still make them today. But this suit, it had only been tested in labs and so forth, and they wanted to get some actual data of how this thing performs at high altitude. So they needed to test the suit, test the actual human being in the suit, see if everything survives and works. And that's kind of what this was all about. This actually provided NASA with a whole lot of data on spaceflight. And to quote Kittinger, he said that basically... We showed NASA that a spacewalk was possible. This didn't necessarily test, although it did to some degree, the effects of zero G. Um, it kind of does because you're free falling for quite some time. Uh, but, you know, like obviously not for hours. I guess up until that point, no one knew what like what happens if a human being is in zero G for, say, two or three minutes. You know, that's a state that no one had ever experienced before. Like you have to really wrap your brain around that. Like no human being had ever floated ever in the history of our species up until he jumped out of this gondola. But uh, before Project Excelsior, there was Project Manhigh. And that was something that Kittinger was also involved in. And I just wanted to touch on that very briefly. It was basically the same thing, except you didn't jump out of the capsule. You just kind of, you know, went up in the balloon. <laughs> and there were three of these flights as well. He was on just the very first one. But during this very first flight, his O2 vented due to a backwards installation of a valve. And so they actually had to bring him back down. But he still managed to reach a record altitude for, you know, that time. But yeah, the actual qualification test for putting some someone in this particular project that actually became the standard for people who were being vetted for the Mercury program. So I guess, you know, because I was kind of worried about this particular event, because I was thinking like, what does this have to do with spaceflight really? But really, this whole event is kind of how it all starts as far as putting people in space, at least. But um, just briefly on the actual balloon, uh, big balloon, it was 200 feet tall and 172 feet wide, which is at its widest point. It held 2 million cubic feet of helium. Don't know what that is in meters, but that's a lot of helium. Obviously, it's underinflated at ground level, and then as it rises, it begins to expand. Um, I thought that was a kind of a cool fact to point out. And the gondola carried two placards, and the first one was a license plate from his son that he cut out from a cereal box. So, like, Kittinger's son, I guess, cut out something from a cereal box. I don't know why there would be a license plate on a cereal box, but he thought that very sentimental, and so he put that on there. Hmm. The other plaque was basically looked kind of like a license plate, um, and it was mounted just under the hatch, and it said... This is the highest step in the world. And so that's kind of why I made the clue that last step is a doozy, because uh, indeed, that was the highest <laughs> step in the world uh, at that time. But yeah, and so getting back to that suit he wore, this was actually a modified version of the MC3 suit, which was called an MC3A. Um, and it's a partial pressure suit, and it is electrically heated, but he still wore extra layers because it got incredibly cold uh, at those altitudes, which is unsurprising. And yeah, and being a partial pressure suit, apparently this just uh, seems off limbs and the torso, but I guess not the rest of the body, but there's not much of the rest of the body to be, uh, you know, sealed off 
So I don't know why it's called a partial pressure suit. It seems like it's pretty comprehensively pressurized, but nonetheless, this is not considered a full pressure suit. Mm. And the suit was modified with a portable life support system. Um, and he breathed a mixture of 60% O2, so obviously a much higher partial pressure of O2 there, and then 20% nitrogen, and then 20% helium. Seems like a lot of helium, yeah. I don't know why the extra helium... For for nitrogen toxicity, or what is it, nitrogen... The bends they they do that I with see. um with deep sea divers, right? Because it's like the bends coming mm-hmm. from the sea up. This must be to keep you from getting the bends going from sea level to high altitude, not coming back down. Wow. But yeah, I've, n- I've never heard of using helium going up. I mean, yeah, decompression I, I think, sickness. Yeah, I think maybe I heard uh like I have a faint memory of Scott Manley talking about like one program that thought about using helium in a crew vehicle in orbit or maybe in a suborbital vehicle but that is that is definitely unusual and i've heard something about the helium when you when you hear uh sound systems like a radio the people down under the surface that are breathing helium their voices sound high but i've heard that if you're in a submarine and everybody is breathing helium that the sounds actually don't sound that warped because it's it's not there's no barrier where like you're speaking and the the right. frequency is altered up and then it hits the atmosphere and suddenly that's where like you know kind of like uh diffraction angles and glass right is that the lensing like something yeah. like that but if if your ears are also full of helium then it Sounds it sounds very right. normal. That's kind of cool. Like I, I don't remember what the what the actual deal is, and I don't know why you know a microphone that is in uh, in the helium would sound like that. So maybe it's just that it doesn't sound any different at all, and the radio system has some sort of weird pitch filter applied, or it's you know something mm. to to be able to transmit mm. audio through that much water, or it's a quirk of the system. Like, I don't know if anybody knows, like, let let me know. I was really hoping one of you two would have known exactly what I was (laughs) talking about. Yeah, no, I don't. I I don't know why the composition of the atmosphere was different, why that would affect the frequency. Well, I mean, when you when you breathe helium into your lungs and then talk, your voice sounds high pitched, right? Yeah, because because right, because what, you know, whatever you're doing that vibrates and creates the sound, I guess, is in a it's. Your muscles want to your muscles want to go at the same speed in a denser atmosphere, but instead they flick up and down, I guess, at a higher rate because the helium makes the gas around it lower. Yeah. So that's why you're a higher pitch. But then at that point, the higher pitch is then traveling through standard temperature and pressure, you know, sea level air or whatever. Yeah. And then I feel like yeah. at that point it would be kind of locked. Yeah, I don't know. I don't it's know. It's the resonance there, in your throat. Uh, I, I don't know anatomy at all. <laughs> <laughs> I assume I assume the, the flapping bits would <laughs> have less less uh, uh, pressure to overcome, and they'd just be flapping harder. Like like when yeah, Goku takes off his sense. weighted boots, you can start kicking much much harder. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the parachutes, right? So this was like a key technology that needed to be tested. What had been developed was something called uh, the Beaupre, I think that's the pronunciation, the Beaupre three-stage parachute, which is a parachute system that instead of having just one parachute to bring you down, you have three, um, mostly just two. Um, And this is the key to avoiding a flat spin. So basically, if you try to pull your parachute too high up, it's not going to properly deploy because there's just not enough atmosphere. Um, And you will 
will most likely go into some kind of a flat spin. But then if you fall for too long, you will still also go into a flat spin. So like you need a parachute that's designed for high altitude before you can switch to one that's designed for a much lower altitude. Um, and so that's what this system is. The very first parachute um, is actually just a little 18-inch diameter pilot chute that deploys 16 seconds after the jump. That's just a very small one. The much more substantial one, but still just a stabilization chute. And this is the key here. This is what actually prevents the flat spin. This is a six-foot diameter chute, and that actually deploys at 96,000 feet. So still very, very high up. And the first time this was tested on the first jump of uh, these three tests, it actually got wrapped around Kittinger's neck, and he actually G-locked from a flat spin at uh, 120 RPM. So you can just imagine how scary that must have been. And he actually lost consciousness, and he stayed out too. Um, he hit the ground unconscious, but he eventually came to. So that was a very scary incident there. 120 RPM, that's what, two revolutions a second. And I guess that's enough to cause you to black out. I don't know quite how, because you still got blood rushing to your head, right? But I mean, needless to say, uh, it's not something that the human body is meant to be doing. So yeah, totally understandable. And you know, like to be fair, um, Baumgartner was the first person to beat this, this jump altitude record, right? And like, Mm -hmm. he also was like very concerned about going into a flat spin. Like, it's not like it's a solved problem today either. But like, oh yeah, for sure. This should be, this should be terrifying and fun. And it sounds like it was just terrifying (laughs) and absolutely miserable. Well, I don't know how it should be fun. I mean, I mean, I guess it's fun if all things go well, but I'd be terrified that something wouldn't. Oh yeah, me too. For real. But uh, yeah, but like luckily in this first instance, uh, the main shoot, you know, just automatically deployed. So that's how he was saved. So he didn't have to, you know, he didn't have to manually deploy these things. There were these automatic features, which were basically he had an altimeter uh, that determined how high up he was. And then that's when the shoot would deploy. So he didn't have to be conscious in order for uh, this whole system to work. One would prefer to be conscious. But yeah. more important is Still, yeah. <laughs> not having to be. But um, yeah, and I'm sorry, I forgot if I mentioned, but the final last shoot is actually a 28-foot diameter main shoot, and that deploys at 14,000 feet, which is a much more reasonable altitude. I think that's maybe when a lot of parachutists, like that's how high up you go. So that's just, you know a standard parachute. And it does have a backup chute as well. So there is still a reserve chute there in case something goes wrong and that last one doesn't deploy correctly. Mm. So anyway, this particular event, like I said, the 19th of August, this was, or I'm sorry, the 16th of August, uh, this was the final jump. So let's talk about that in a little bit more detail. So the launch of the balloon was actually east of the jump zone, um, which was over the Tularosa Valley in New Mexico. Um, I couldn't figure out how far uh, actually, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I could have because I believe the launch zone is listed. I just didn't want to look it up on Google Maps. But basically, um, it's some distance to the east. And uh, the reason for that is because once that balloon starts to ascend, it'll drift east because it goes into the troposphere. Not for too long, but it does drift a little bit like even further east. Then it drifts much further west once it hits the stratosphere. So they had to account for that because, you know, this balloon does not have any way of actually navigating or controlling its position. So um, he still had to... To drift for a good 12 minutes after reaching altitude before finally jumping because I guess maybe the winds weren't quite as strong as they had hoped. So he was a little bit too far to the east, but eventually he drifted back west and then he was able to jump. And uh, one really bad thing that happened was uh, during the ascent, the right glove pressure seal failed and this caused his hand to swell up and he just couldn't use it. And it got very, very cold, very, very swollen, very, very painful, um, in fact. And this was a really bad thing because he needed to pull 
pull a ripcord with that hand. But like I said, luckily there are automated systems on on board which can you know pull the chutes for him. So this is you know, and this wasn't the first time that he had to rely on something else to actually do the deployment of the chutes. And since he knew that you know he could do that, he didn't tell anyone about the glove failure because they would probably scrub this. So uh, he just wanted to press on, and he just kind of dealt with the pain. Mm. I thought it interesting, and I was kind of trying to work out in my head how these partial pressure suits work that you could lose pressure in a hand but not the rest of the body. So clearly it's cut off, right? So the so the hand section is basically isolated from the rest of the suit. And so I guess there was something that was, you know, because like there was a seal failure, but not a seal failure separating the hand from the rest of the suit. Does that make sense? Sure. Yep. I think you can think about this as like, like four, no, five different suits, right? Um, so like if you ever put a wetsuit on, it like compresses your whole body, right? And like it lets the water soak in, but it's still like applying pressure to your body. Um, that's like a compression suit. If you've ever worn a dry suit, I think that's more like a pressure suit or like a partial pressure suit. So a, a dry suit has thick elastic uh, cuffs on the wrists and the ankles, and then even one around your neck. It's like a um, like a turtleneck kind of thing. And so in a dry suit, you're very puffy. Like you, you float on top of the water until you pull on your collar and let all the air out of your neck because it, it's trapping air inside the suit to keep you warm and keeping the water away from your skin. Um, like it's, a, it's insulating with air instead of insulating with water. And so I think that's basically what this is, is it's like uh, a dry suit with a helmet and then the gloves and boots do their own seal. And so like if you, you can take off the glove and of course the glove loses pressure because you've taken it off, but your sleeve is also pressurized. Right. That's the distinction I was trying to make is that yeah. the glove lost pressure, but yep. you know, it's still maintained the pressure seal. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's not that it's not so much that this is all one suit. It's more that it's like, you've got one yeah. suit on your chest and one suit on your right hand and one suit on your left hand. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, he reached a peak altitude of 102,800 feet, which is over 31 kilometers high, which is insane. Uh, I, I always forget that balloons can even go that high. It's kind of amazing that uh, helium can actually do that. And yeah, and he took that final step and he fell he says on his right side for about eight seconds. And then he was able to, and I don't know how he was, he was able to roll over onto his back. Now, how do you do that when you have nothing to push against? You just do like a little cat maneuver, which must be it. Um, you kind of learn how to contort your body. <laughs> and uh, so, so I don't, I don't think that, I think you're, I think you're still pushing against the air, right? Like cats can flip over because they like, they rotate different parts of their body to like they can do that in zero G, but I don't think you can mm -hmm. do that here. I think what he's doing is like raising his arms and pushing one leg down, right. To create differential pressure on the, on his body. Cause like when you, when you're like, when you see people in those like skydiving tubes, that's got like a big fan at the bottom, like indoor skydiving, they yeah, can yeah. like change their orientation and do all sorts of spins and things without doing like cat flailing. They just like subtly are changing the shape of their body. But I don't know if, the, if there is enough atmospheric density in order to do that, because if that were the case, you wouldn't have to worry about going into a flat spin, right? You should be able to control it then if if uh, that were the case. It the, seems like... There is the possibility that the increasing pressure helped. <laughs> like he might not have been able to do it at the beginning and then the pressure got up high enough that he was. But I don't know. I mean, it's, this is all like super subtle aerodynamics <laughs> with a human body. Yeah. 
you know, it's a skill. So this was just for the first eight seconds. So I don't think you could have fallen too far. I mean, maybe, you know, the atmospheric density increased enough. Um, yeah. But I mean, you can go into a flat spin for quite some distance before you really hit a thicker atmosphere. I mean, it's pretty uh, yeah. pretty thin that high up. But I mean, needless to say, he was able to roll onto his back. And he said one interesting thing, which is which was that he looked up and he saw the balloon and like gondola racing away from him. And he thought that that meant that it was just, it somehow was like zooming up into space because he could see the sun and just, it was just black. He said it was the blackest black he'd ever seen. Yeah. So he was basically there at the edge of space. And he thought, oh, the balloon is just ascending into space now that I've jumped out of it. But of course, that's not what was happening. It was him falling back towards Earth. But he just couldn't tell because, again, I think the atmosphere was so thin that you just couldn't feel any air rushing past you. It's basically like you're floating in space and you kind of are. You're just, you know, not in orbit. So you're going to hit the ground. Yeah. Well, if you said, yeah, if, if he was in free fall for over four and a half minutes then that, that mm-hmm. that's what free fall is, is when you're just feeling gravity pulling on you and you're not feeling enough drag force to be anything meaningful. So Right, yeah. So that's the next thing. Yeah, he went into free fall. Now, I think that there is kind of like a small caveat here because he was in free fall. But as I understand it, a lot of that was with the second parachute deployed. It's just that it was a stabilization chute. So he's still kind of falling. It's just keeping him a little bit stable. I don't think he fell with just the pilot chute for four minutes and 37 seconds. And again, this is to prevent him from going into a flat spin. So if it's not deployed for those first four minutes, which are probably the most dangerous, then what's the whole point of the system? Yeah. Unless unless the word free fall means something different for high altitude parachuting, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm also I, I mean, I don't think that. it really slows you down much at all. I guess a, a little bit maybe, but maybe it mostly is just there to prevent you from going into a spin. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so as he's falling, uh, this is when temperatures really start to dip because I guess once or I guess when he was in the capsule, there was some amount of life support there, things to keep him nice and warm. But once outside... The temperatures were as low as negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 70 Celsius, which is just terrifyingly cold. Once again, this is why he was having a hard time with that right hand, because you can imagine your right hand being exposed to open air or lack thereof of negative 94 degrees. That just has to hurt, right? Um, (laughs) Plus, there was actually an instrument box that did not completely release. So like if you look at photos, you will see a red box that he, it kind of looks like he's sitting on. And I was trying to figure out what that was. And for the longest time, I couldn't figure it out. Then I did read that there was actually an instrument box that he that was kind of like a, um, I forget what they called it, a seat kit or something like that. So I think that that's where that was strapped to. Um, that was supposed to be released before he landed because it's hard to land when you're sitting on a big red crate looking thing. Mm. But he couldn't get both latches to release. So it, it just was like still stuck to his bum. And he landed with that thing still strapped to him and it severely bruised his leg uh and if you look at photos i mean there's like you know a handful of photos of him jumping out of the capsule and you'll see that he has it and it looks like it almost looks like it's duct taped to his ass it really does (laughs) i i don't know if that's tape or maybe something else but it looks like tape like he's got a red box strapped to his butt um the total descent time from the jump to the ground was 13 minutes and 45 seconds so that was a record. And shortly after this, he did receive a cable, quote unquote. I don't know what a cable is. I'm too young to know what that is, but uh, I guess it's like a, a telegraph telegram. or something. Yeah, that's a telegram. A telegram. Um, he got a cable from the Mercury 7 crew congratulating him, um, which I thought was kind of mm. nice uh, because uh, uh, they said, you know, thanks for uh, showing that uh, this is possible and, you know, pushing the envelope. And, you know, less than, well, I guess about, yeah, I think less than a year later, um, that's when Alan Shepard made his first flight. So, so the four records that were set at that time were the highest descent in a balloon, the longest jump, uh, the longest free fall, and the fastest speed by a human in the atmosphere, which I guess is just to say the fastest speed of a human 
falling. I think I also read the fastest speed by a human under their own propulsion or something like that, which just means jumping in this case. <laughs> but yeah, these records, I believe, like all, but maybe one were broke by Felix Baumgartner. But I'm not entirely sure about that because I uh, saw that uh, maybe he actually broke all four. There's some conflicting information there. But basically, he did break the altitude record for sure. He went up to 127,000 feet, I believe. Uh, he broke the speed record, definitely. He actually uh, broke the sound barrier, so he went transonic. I think he was the first transonic human being that wasn't surrounded by a, a aircraft or spacecraft. And he obviously recorded the longest jump on record because he jumped from a higher altitude. Kittinger apparently still holds the longest free fall record. So I guess he fell for a longer period of time before deploying the main chute. You know, again, according to some sources, he was in free fall for at least 16 miles. But I'm not sure about that because I had also read that maybe Baumgartner did break that. And then if it wasn't him, there was someone after him. I don't remember the guy's name. It, I don't think it was long after who actually broke all of Baumgartner's records. Alan Eustace. It's kind of fascinating. He just quietly was like, I'm going to jump from a yeah, higher yeah. altitude. But yeah. He was a big wig at Google, apparently. Yeah, he was a software engineer or something like that. And yeah, it very much was quiet because I didn't even know about this. I knew about Baumgartner. I didn't know that his records had been broken. Yeah, it's a big Red Bull event. Woo! Yeah, you know, they, they, yeah. they really did uh, yeah. hype it up. Yeah. But yeah, nonetheless, I think that you know, at least one record still stands in that is to be, you know, the first person to do it. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Joe Kittinger, very cool guy. And he, um, I don't think I put this in here. Um, one cool thing, he was also the first person to single-handedly or by themselves cross the Atlantic Ocean in a balloon. So he had some other balloon stunts to pull. Yeah. Um, and he did that in 1984, which was quite a number of years later. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so he had a very, very interesting career. Uh, fought in Vietnam, got taken prisoner when his plane was shot down, spent some time in the, what do they call it, the Hanoi Hilton. Oh, <laughs> Guy has stories for days, yeah. But yeah, that's your This Week in Space Life History. And I like that you were able to, yeah, like that you, you identified and found these connections to, you know, the space program. So I guess something else that is a record of his that nobody else can hold is that he was jumping from these balloons. I guess there were some other people, but he was at least one of these people jumping from balloons to ultimately get us to land human beings on the moon, which is pretty... <laughs> mm -hmm. That's not this week in spaceflight history. That's this week in falling from space with style history. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Fair enough. Well put. So, Ben, uh, next week is the 22nd to the 28th of August. Do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. Next week, uh, in 2003, the clue is Tele McTelescope Face. Tele McTelescope Face. Okay, that is as Ben a clue as they get. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you have a guess as to what this uh, clue is referencing, uh, email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon using the hashtag thisweeksf. Uh, right now, we only check federated toots on botson.space and spacey.space, but you can always mention at orbitalpodcast at botson.space. Or you can just visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord and join our discord where you can type slash TWSF and that will directly hand your guests to Tombot. We had a lot of good participation uh, these last, you know, few weeks. And so, you know, if you haven't guessed before, uh, maybe this will be the week you try for the first time. So go for it. And uh, good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. So let's do upcoming spaceflight events. We just got four of those, three of them launches. What's the first launch, Ben? Yep. First launch is Starlink Group 610. So this is launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5. Uh, we don't have an official uh, T0 right now. Um, so the... 
the big old window in which uh, the vehicle may be launching uh, is coming from a um, a launch forecast report. So this kind of like gets us the window of time that they're looking at for the weather. And sometime in there is going to be an actual uh, launch window or T0. Um, by the way, right now, the weather is 25% go at the beginning of this uh, weather observation period and uh, goes up to 70% at the end. So, you know, this may not happen in this window at all. But the window is from Thursday, August 17th uh, at 0 hundred hours UTC and runs through to 0400 hours UTC uh, on the same day, August 17th. And then we have basically the same story, different coast. <laughs> so we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 taking Starlink Group 7-1 to LEO. Um, for similar reasons, this also has a window that is under... Basically what Bennett just said. And in this case, the window is from uh, Thursday, August 17th at 0652 UTC to August 17th, 1101 UTC. And uh, being on the West Coast, it's flying out of Vandenberg Space Force Base, of course, uh, at Slick 4E. All right. And then after that, on the 21st, uh, I will play Dennis this time. I think you've done all these, but I will do <laughs> this one, which is the um, sixth and second to last of the Parker Solar Probe flybys of Venus. So this one, uh, the orbit is dropping from 9.2 to 7.9 million kilometers, which means that it is picking up velocity. And that will be an increase from 163 to 176 kilometers per second. So, yeah. That's ridiculous fast. <laughs> um, and the period is now dropping from 96 days to 92 days. Um, and yeah, I guess just one more flyby, right? Yeah, I think it's next year, and then it'll be in its tightest orbit. All right, and our final launch is Progress MS-24, uh, a.k.a. Progress 85P, depending on whether you are NASA or Roscosmos. Um, this is a Progress resupply mission, just like you would expect from the name. It's going to be flying on a Soyuz 21A on Wednesday, August 23rd at 0108 hours UTC. And uh, just like you expect, it's flying out of Baikonur. Not a whole lot of interesting things uh, to say about uh, this launch. It's like I have everything you think it's going to be. The rendezvous and capture, or the rendezvous and docking, uh, will be airing on NASA TV on Thursday, August 24th, starting at 11 uh, p.m. Eastern Time. The actual docking is scheduled for 11.50 p.m. Eastern Time. And those are your upcoming space flight events. All right, so let's deal with the show then. And we would like to thank Ron Janky Zam Tim Dobb for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris S., Mike, Colin, The Greek, and Delta V for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. And you can also visit the Orbital Mechanics support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you all next week on Robit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.